0: I'm assuming that uh, probably the majority of us in here have played the game Jenga once or twice before As we all played the game Jenga. You know what? You know what I'm talking about if you don't if you've never played. Yeah, the block game, you stack it up. The tower of bricks. The players take turns pulling one block out at a time and stacking it on top and whoever makes the whole thing topple over, well guess what? They're the losers and I guess that's one of the few games where there are multiple winners, but only one loser. Usually, it's the other way around. Uh, but that's that's the the premise that there's there, you got to remove the blocks and then set them on top again. I think there are some who view theology as if it is a Jenga tower. They seem to think that they are they have the liberty to remove bricks to change them a little bit, change their orientation, and then to set them on top, put them back in a different place, and think that everything will be just fine and dandy. And while it is true that there are some doctrines that may carry less weight in the Christian life, and they affect fewer things in the grand scheme of things, there are some doctrines that are so foundational to the Christian life so fundamental that to remove them does not merely just change the overall shape and structure of the tower, but will cause the whole thing to fall down. There are some that would play fast and loose with these doctrines and seek to modify them according to whatever whatever philosophy or ideology they might be under the influence of. And yet then they act surprised when the whole thing comes toppling over. It's like, well, what did you expect? You removed a foundational piece, a foundational aspect of the Christian faith. And yet everything has now collapsed. Doctrines such as biblical bibliology, the doctrine of the Word of God, that it is inerrant, inspired, infallible. That what the Word of God says, it is true. There are some that would seek to undermine the doctrine of the Word of God. Theology proper, the doctrine of who our God is, denying central aspects and tenets of who God has revealed himself to be. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, the means by which we are saved. We observe the Lord's table, a declaration of the gospel of Christ. That is soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. There are many others as well. But to try to remove these doctrines, to change them, or to forsake what the Bible says about them, is not, again, it's not simply just to alter the structure. These are foundational. These are the the bedrock pieces. To remove them will cause the whole tower to topple over. This last week, I had the opportunity to go down to Atlanta, Georgia, for a theology conference known as G3. G3 stands for Gospel, Grace, and Glory. It was a conference started by a pastor down in the Atlanta area. He started it simply because he desired to edify his people, to edify the church. And so he invited some speakers to come in and to teach sound biblical theology to his church. Well, over the years, it's become quite a popular conference. It's almost remarkable how popular it has become in light of the fact that it is committed to what the Word of God has to say about the key truths of the Christian faith. And as, as more people have become aware of that, this year, 6,500 people gathered in Atlanta, and I don't even know how many more gathered online to, to view what was taught at these conferences. And the theme of the conference this year was a biblical Christology, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. The speakers taught from key texts that highlight and, and magnify who Jesus Christ is, what the Word of God has to say about him. The teaching was good, the fellowship was sweet, and it was just an enjoyable time there. And it was great to see that there are still many individuals, there are still many pastors in the United States and across the world that are still holding the line on biblical theology and biblical Christology. And so it was a delight to share that time with them in Atlanta. But as I listened to those speakers, there's a there's a passage that came to my mind that underscores this doctrine and underscores the necessity of holding the line on biblical Christology. Biblical Christology is one of those foundational doctrines which we can't play fast and loose with the theology of who Christ is. Scripture is crystal clear on the teaching of. Jesus Christ. And to remove that is not just, again, to change the shape and the structure of the tower of Christianity, so to speak, but if we alter, if we forsake what the Bible has to say about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done, the whole tower of Christianity comes tumbling down. And so as the Bible is crystal clear on who Jesus Christ is, what he has done, and what our response ought to be, let us turn and examine a a passage that speaks to this critical nature of of holding fast to biblical Christology. We're going to take a one-week break from our walk through Philippians in order to just be refreshed and reminded the centrality of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Looking at the book of 2 John. 2 John is one of the more unique letters that we have in the, in the New Testament. It's, of course, one of the shortest books of, of the whole Bible. You know, we don't spend a whole lot of time in the book of 2 John, partly because it's just so short. <laughs> you can preach the whole thing in a week or two, and then you move on to something else. But not only is it very short, but it was addressed not to a whole church, but to an individual and to her children. The letter is a simple one, containing just a few simple reminders. John was exhorting the, this individual he identifies as the elect lady. We have no knowledge of who this woman was, but he sought to encourage her in this way, to remind her to love one another, and then to watch out for those who would deny biblical Christology, who would deny the doctrine of Christ. Look with me at just verse 9 really quickly here where John writes, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. I have the ESV in front of me and that's where the it has that concept of everyone who goes on ahead. It's the idea of, of stepping beyond an established boundary. Right, there's a line in the sand, there's a line that has been drawn, and someone has crossed that line. There is a boundary, there is a there is a fence, there is a border there. We're not to cross that border. I actually prefer the New American Standard Bible for this. Uh, this phrase here, it says that anyone who goes too far, that's the idea. It's anyone who goes on ahead, they've gone too far. They've, they've gone beyond what the pages of Scripture write for us about who Jesus Christ is and what He has done. And if we go beyond this teaching, go beyond what is contained in the Word of God, Scripture says that we do not have the Father or the Son. So John gives us this solemn warning, do not go there. Just a few verses earlier, we have uh, what he wrote, a specific way in which some have gone too far, 2 John, uh, verse 7, he says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So we have this situation in John's day, there were individuals who were denying the doctrine that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh, had really come in the the flesh. They were wrestling with the concept, how is it that Jesus Christ could be truly God and yet also truly man in in one person? That's, That's difficult for us to wrap our minds around. And so in order to try to reconcile this in their minds, they said, you know what, well, Yes, Jesus, sure, he may have been God, but he wasn't really in the flesh. He, he was really just appeared to be in the flesh. He had an appearance of being in the flesh, almost like a mirage where you think you see something in it. It sure looks like that thing, but it's not actually him in the flesh. And so they denied the true humanity of Jesus Christ. This, of course, is a critical error a critical error because if Jesus Christ has not really come in the flesh if Jesus Christ is not truly human then he could not have been a perfect sacrifice a perfect substitute for us he could not represent us he could not stand in our place and be our salvation so john identifies these individuals who Deny the doctrine of Christ. They deny that Jesus Christ had really come in the flesh. And John says, This is heresy. This is abject heresy. And there are many who throw that word around sometimes a little bit too loosely. Like everything is heresy. If they don't agree with me, it's heresy. Well, we don't, we want to be careful with that. But there are times when there is real heresy, right? There are times where we must look at what the Word of God has to say and say, No, we stand for truth. We stand for what the Word of God has to say. And there were many other similar heresies that floated around regarding the nature of who Jesus Christ was that the church had to continually wrestle against and and speak against. And so over the years, there were different creeds and confessions that were formed in specific response to Christological heresies that developed over the years. And we are called to hold to what the Scripture says. John says, Do not go too far. Do not go beyond the boundary. Do not cross the line regarding what Scripture has to say about who Jesus Christ is. Now, if we had time, I would love to just do a whole, whole survey of all the New Testament, or, what, or the whole Bible even, of what the Scripture has to say about who Jesus Christ is. We don't have time to do all that. But I would like us to go through and look at, specifically, who John identifies Jesus to be. So we're going to go back to the Gospel of John now. And we're just going to trace some key themes throughout the Gospel of John that, as John was writing, as as he is writing to exhorting the elect lady, exhorting her children, do not go too far, anyone who goes too far, anyone who goes beyond the doctrines of Christ as revealed in the Scripture— They do not have God. They do not have Christ. Well, who is it that Jesus Christ is? Who is it that that Scripture has revealed Him to be? Who has Jesus Christ revealed Himself to be? We're going to look at several texts that unfold that for us in the Gospel of John. John wrote with a specific purpose as he was writing his Gospel. If you read through the Gospel of John, you will notice that there is constant tension There is constant comparison and contrast between the different individuals as they interact with Jesus Christ. There are those who are going to outright reject Jesus. Say, no, we want nothing to do with this man. He is not the Messiah. He is not who he claims to be. So there is outright rejection. Then there are others who initially seem to embrace him, but we see in the text that they do so for the wrong reasons. They want to make him king, and Jesus says, you want to make me your king, not because you believe in who I am, because you ate the food and were full. I gave you food, and now you want to make me king. Impure motives. So it seems like they embrace him, but they do so with a heart that is not genuine before the Lord. And then that is contrasted once again with those who truly embrace Jesus Christ, for who he truly is is. And so we see that contrast, that comparison throughout the book. So John is, is very concerned with the identity of who Jesus Christ is, who is Jesus Christ, and how then ought we to respond to him in light of who he is. So let's be begin at the very beginning of the gospel of John, John at chapter 1, where John writes this, in the beginning was the word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word, of course, refers to Jesus Christ himself. We could get sidetracked and talk about what it is that means that Jesus Christ is the Word, the, the divine Logos. That's A discussion for another time, but for right now, just just know that this is who this is referring to. This is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. That alone is so critical to understand because there are some that teach that Jesus Christ is another created being. But Jesus Christ existed in the beginning. He wasn't created at the beginning. He, he did not not exist at some point and then exists later on. No, he always has been. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus Christ is God. And everything that that means. And we've, we've talked about that as we've moved through the book of Philippians and seen that though he existed in the form of God and how that, that teaches that Jesus Christ is truly God and everything that that means. The deity of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is divine. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him there was not anything made that was made. You know, if you're interacting with uh, Jehovah's Witness, I don't know, how many of you have had a conversation with Jehovah's Witness? Yep, we get them all the time. No, it's just, if you we were to read the New World Translation from Jehovah's Witness, from, from John right here, we would, they would say that, oh, the word was a God, and they would be a lowercase g. They change the translation there, seeking to show that, oh yeah, Jesus Christ, he's not truly God in the sense that he is the God, but he's a lesser being. He is a created being. But verse 3 alone, even, even their mistranslation of verse 1 notwithstanding, verse 3 alone it disproves that theory because they believe Jesus is another created being. Well, verse 3 shows that that cannot be the case. All things were made through him. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. If Jesus Christ is another created being, verse 3 could not be true. Because it says all things that were made were made through him. There's nothing that was made apart from him. So Jesus Christ must be the eternally existent Son of God. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Skip down with me to verse 14. We see that Jesus Christ is God. He is divine. In everything that that means, He created the whole world. He has great immense power and glory. And then in verse 14, we find this enigmatic statement. The Word became Flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. It is this statement alone that that causes so much difficulty within our minds. And, and there's the reason why that so many people have sought to marry logic and theology together and have sought to understand how is it that, that God could become a man. And, and because of trying to figure out how that works, there are many heresies that developed seeking to try to explain this exact reality. And that is why John had to write later on that Those who deny that Jesus Christ really came in the flesh, they don't have God. Well, this is the truth. This is what it is right here. The Word became flesh. He took on humanity and dwelt among us. That word for dwelt has the idea of pitching a tent. He tabernacled among us. He set up his tent among us. He lived among his people. And we have seen His glory. The glory of God was on display in the person of Jesus Christ as He walked this earth. Paul wrote in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. The one who has made all things. The eternally existing one. Through whom everything was made. There is nothing that was made that was not made. And he enters into his creation. He takes on flesh. He takes on humanity. And lives amongst his people. It's it's mind-boggling to us how, how this could, how could it be? How could the divine person inhabit the, the human body? How could that come together? And we wrestle with that and we don't we don't fully know how exactly that works, but we know that it is what the scripture says. Truly God in everything that that means. Truly human in everything that that means. Inseparably united in one person. The person of Jesus Christ. This is essential Christology for us. Jesus Christ had to be truly God or else he could not have lived a perfect life. If he was just another man, he could not have died for us because he would have had his own sins to die for. But he had to be truly human because if he was not truly human, he could not be our sacrifice. He could not be our representative. He could not take our place on the cross so John presents him as being truly God and truly man. Again, there were some that accepted him and, and some that did not. Go over to chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, after Jesus had done his his first miracle, he, he went out and he cleansed the temple and drove out the money changers and, and things of that nature. And, and some were just confused about how is it that he was doing these things. And there was the response of the people to Jesus Christ and We have the statement in John chapter 2, verse 23. Now he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. They saw the signs. They saw the things they did, and they went, Wow, that's the guy. That's the one. And so it says they believed in him. But look at verse 24. Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. That's actually the same word for believe. Jesus did not believe himself to them. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed to no one, no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There's just a hint right there at the very beginning that there are some that are going to, they're going to profess faith. They're going to think that they believe, but it's, they're believing in the signs. They're believing in the wonders. And they have yet to embrace who Jesus Christ really is. And so Jesus does not entrust himself to them, knowing that they have not truly embraced him. But he continues to present himself as the Christ, as God in human flesh. Go over to, with me to, to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and... You know, if anybody ever says, oh, you know, Jesus Christ, he never even, he never even claimed it to be God. Well, just, just take them over to John chapter 5, because guess what? He did, and it's very clear that he did so. John at chapter 5, in the context of this, Jesus has, has healed a man, and he did so on the Sabbath. He healed a man, he told him to stand up, take up your bed, and walk, and so he did so. And then the Pharisees are confronting the man, why are you doing this on the Sabbath? You shouldn't be walking. This isn't what you should be doing. This is the Sabbath day. This is a day of rest. And this leads to a confrontation with Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now. And I am working. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself what? Equal with God. The Jews understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus was claiming to be God in human flesh. He says, my Father is working until now, and I am working. He was identifying his own working with the working of the Father. He was calling God his Father. He was identifying himself with the Father, claiming to be equal with God. John chapter 7. John chapter 7, the, as Jesus continues to teach the people, he continues to, to teach them and wow the people with his teaching and the, there's various reactions that come against him. Again, there's these tensions, these, these disagreements amongst the people. Who is this man? Who is he? he? He's teaching in this particular way. And now we see some of this, this tension revealed in chapter 7, verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, oh, this really is the prophets. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid their hands on him. The officers then came from the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And just from the context, there were the, the chief priests, the leaders, they had sent individuals to arrest Jesus. And so now they're asking him, why did you not arrest him? And the officers answered in verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man. So we see that there is this tension that is being revealed. There's this this division amongst the people. They're disagreeing about who Jesus Christ is. Some say, well, surely this is the Christ. No one can talk like this unless they are the Christ. And others, rejecting who he is. Chapter 8. Chapter 8, and we're going to go towards the latter portion of the chapter, and We're going to pick things up in verse 54. Again, Jesus is interacting with the Jews, and he's having an argument with them. They are accusing him of being demon-possessed because of the things that he is saying. And Jesus says, no, I'm I'm not demon-possessed. And then we pick it up in verse 54. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I I were to say to you, I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Notice the Jews' response. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And you have seen Abraham. They're, they're kind of mocking him in the moment. Oh, how? You know, like, come on. Like Abraham lived h- hundreds of years ago. You did not see Abraham. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus, claiming identification with the great I am. This, of course, was how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. He says, I am that I am. That is who has sent you. And Jesus Christ claims that for himself. Before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, but I am. And now again, notice the Jews' response, 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Well, why is it they wanted to kill him? Because he was uttering what would be blasphemy if it was not true. That Jesus Christ. Is God. He is the great I am. And He declares Himself to be God. Just a couple more passages to look at, Chapter ten, John chapter ten, verse twenty two and following we see this consistent theme of these confrontations with the Jews, and there's no mistaking who it is that Jesus Christ is declaring himself to be. John 10, 22. at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered round him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you. I've already told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, he is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then Jesus says these words, I and the Father are one. Unity with the Father. Unity with God. And so once again, the Jews, there's no mistaking what it is that Jesus is claiming here. The Jews had this same response. They pick up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them in verse 32, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. There are so many false teachers today that, that would say, people, skeptics of Christianity, skeptics of the Word of God that say, Jesus never even claimed to be God. You're worshiping a man. He, sure, maybe he was a good prophet. Sure, he was maybe a good man, a good teacher. But he wasn't God and he never even claimed it to be God. Well, I'm sorry. But right here we have the words of Jesus Christ right there in the text. He made himself to be God. And the Jews understood that exactly. And so they were going to stone him. For it. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. John chapter 14. Jesus has established himself as who he is, and again, John is being very careful to show who the identity of who Jesus Christ is, and then show the reaction of the people. We see the tension at play. We see the rejection. We see the, the tension, the, the conflicts going on. Jesus Christ is clear who he is, and, and now he declares himself to be the exclusive way to the Father. This is a familiar verse, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ is the exclusive way to the Father. There's not many ways to God, as some claim today. There are many that would say there's there's many paths. All all roads lead to God. In a way, I wish that were true. But it's just not what Scripture says. Teaches. God would be unjust if that were true. The only way is through Jesus Christ. And so we have, again, the testimony of the apostles in the book of Acts. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is one way to the Father, and it is through Jesus Christ. One final passage from the Gospel of John it is John chapter 20. This is after the crucifixion of Christ, after his resurrection. He has made himself known to his disciples. He has revealed himself. He had that interaction with Thomas, who is doubting whether or not Jesus had truly risen from the dead on the basis of the testimony of the other apostles. And we have Jesus appearing to him, and Jesus says, Oh yeah, go ahead, put your hand on my side. And and Thomas believes. And Jesus says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then we have these words from John that sum up the whole purpose of why he has written this gospel. Why he has written this. He has written this for one specific purpose. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these, these words, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John says, He's it. This is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one the prophets wrote about. He's the one that that they wrote and declared and looked forward to. He's here. He, he, He has done all these wondrous things. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And that by believing, truly believing, not this fake belief that it's because, oh, I have my belly filled and now I'm, I'm pleased to believe in Jesus. No. Belief that what Jesus, Jesus is exactly who He claimed it to be. That Jesus did what He claimed to do. That He will do for you what He says He has promised to do in His Word. That is, to save those who believe, that by believing you would have life in His name, Jesus Christ. Anyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Everyone who rejects the testimony of the words of this book does not have God. Friends, this is what makes the false religions that exist in the world today, the cults that we even have here in southern Indiana, It's what makes it so tragic. Because they have gone beyond. They have crossed the line. They have abandoned what Scripture says. They have sought to, to pull out that bottom Jenga block and the whole structure comes tumbling down. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus Christ is merely a created being a significant being, but merely created. He is not God and not worthy of worship. They have gone beyond and have not abided in the teaching of Christ. Mormons believe that Jesus Christ is a, was a spirit child of the Father, and he has ascended to God nature. They do not believe in the biblical teaching of the Trinity. They do not believe that Jesus Christ is what Scripture teaches him to be. So they, have not, they do not abide in the doctrine, the teaching of Christ. That word teaching, by the way, in 1 John 9, it could also be translated as doctrine, the doctrine of Christ. That's the, word, the word doctrine comes from the Greek word that is here in this text, the doctrine of Christ, the teaching of Christ. The prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. This is, this is the gospel of those who said, oh, you filled our bellies, now we want to make you king." Right? That's the prosperity gospel. As long as you're going to make me healthy, wealthy, as long as those things are going to happen, yes, I'll believe in Jesus. It's a distortion of who Jesus Christ is and what He came to do. The prosperity gospel does not abide in the teaching of Christ. Related to the prosperity is, is the Branhamites here in southern Indiana. They have not abided in the teaching of Christ. They don't have a biblical Christology Sadly. Therefore, they do not have God. The nation of uh, the uh, religion of Islam believes that Jesus was a, a prophet. Friends, a prophet doesn't save. A prophet cannot save if he is a mere prophet. But he is more than a prophet. He is God in human flesh. You know, this is why this statement, too, is so critical for us as well. We proclaim Christ, the Christ of the Scriptures. Not just just whatever it is that we feel like we want to teach, but we stand on the Word of God. We stand on what Christ has declared Himself to be. We proclaim Christ. So we must cling to the doctrine of Christ. It is a foundational doctrine within our faith. We must cling to what the Scripture teaches about Christ. But not only must we cling to the the doctrine of Christ and what Scripture teaches about who He is, but we must also cling to Jesus Christ Himself, right? Jesus Christ is not just a doctrine, something that is revealed in Scripture that we just learn about in an academic sense, but rather He is our very life. We cling to the person that is revealed through the doctrine. We cling to Christ Himself. For again, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven a given among men whereby we must be saved. Friends, the doctrine of Jesus Christ is absolutely critical for us to embrace, critical for us to proclaim it to others as we interact with individuals. It's not enough to think that Jesus is a good man. It is not enough to think that Jesus is a good prophet. It is not enough to think that Jesus is a good teacher. He is all those things, but more. He must be more. He is God in human flesh, who died for my sin and for yours, who didn't stay dead but rose again from the dead. And by believing in Him, we will have life in His name. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the doctrine of Christ, the teaching of Christ. Thank you for the Scripture that reveals Christ. And Lord, we have this text that serves also. Yes, it's a warning for us. Anyone who does not a, abide in the doctrine of Christ, anyone who goes too far, goes beyond what your Word has to say about Christ. We do not have. We do not have God. We do not have you we also have this promise that whoever does abide in the teaching, whoever does abide in biblical doctrine, the, the biblical teaching of who Jesus Christ is, has both the Father and the Son. And so we, we rejoice in that today, that we have the Father and the Son. that is not something for us to be arrogant about, to be, to be proud of, like, oh, yes, look at us. We have the Father and the Son as if we are anything in ourselves, if, as if we made ourselves who we are but rather we rejoice in the grace that you have shown us, that we have life in the name of Jesus Christ, not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who He is and what He has done. And I pray that we can humbly yet boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of who Jesus is, that others would see the the glory of who He is, see His majesty, His beauty, we would bow before him, that you would save more for the sake of your name. We thank you, and we praise you for these things, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.